from the New York City area, welcome to the Badass Counseling Show, where the master badass himself, Sven Erlinson, takes you deep and gives balm for the soul, baby. Welcome to the Badass Counseling Show. I am the host, Sven Erlinson. Welcome from as far away as Lisbon and Perth and uh, Turkey. We've got Alexandria, Virginia in the house. We've got Singapore in the house all around the world tuning in for a lightning round of the Badass Counseling Show. I'm joined in studio by KC over in the booth. Rob the Rocket right next to me. Rob the Rocket right next to me. What say ye? I'm just always glad to be here bringing the sidekick stuff. Well, you bring it well. Yeah, thank you. On the lightning round, I get to actually speak some questions, which I just love being involved, Sven. Thank you. Well, you bring the wisdom, Daddy. Oh, you have a little special extra something in studio today. And I think yeah. at some point in the show today, we are going to uh, see what you brought into studio today. I've been telling everyone, uh, I think it was an episode or two ago, that we are soon going to be joined in studio by the single most beautiful human being we have ever had in this studio. Yes, even better looking than you, Rob. Impossible. Yeah, well, that's what many would argue. I wouldn't, but many would, I'm sure. Yeah, many, I'm sure there's someone, wouldn't. your mother, someone, um, teasing. Uh, and so we, we'll get to meet a special someone today, but for the moment, Let's get it cranked up. Here we go. First one coming out of the gate is from Molly. Uh, I cut my mother out of my life. I live in a small town. What do I do when I run into her in public? My first question to you, Molly, would be, what do you want to do? Do you want to turn your back? Do you want to walk away? Do you want to ignore her? Do you want to say hi? What do you want to do? Uh, you live in a small town. I grew up in a small town for uh, the first uh, several years. And so I get it. I get it. You're, it's inevitable. You're going to see her. The question is, what do you want to do? And I mean, within the confines of the law, what do you want to do? And what keeps you from just doing it? If you don't want to talk to her, don't talk to her. If you want to just keep it, you know, clean and just say hi, say hi. If she gets near, you know, it's up to you. And when I say clean, I'm not selling that. If that would just sort of lube it, lube the joints a bit to make it easier for you, then do that. But you're not beholden to her feelings in this case. If you cut her out, you you had good reason and stick to your guns. So you are allowed to do it your way. Um, and if and that means totally ignoring her, then totally ignore her. But uh, you cut her out for a reason and you can follow through in whatever way feels right to you, obviously within the confines of the law. All right, next question. This is from TikTok and Jen. I'm breaking up with someone who has attachment issues. Do you have any recommendations? Yeah, I, my recommendation in breakups is always be kind, but be firm. Uh, unless someone's just being outright brutal to you, under which, at which point your obligation to be kind is sort of out the window and just be firm and, and get out of there. But with a person with attachment issues, um, their attachment, if you're breaking up, you're breaking up for a reason, that for whatever reason, you don't want to be in this relationship anymore. And you can be kind and you can be, uh, and say, you know, whatever you want to say, but you have to be firm. But in the end, and this kind of sounds brutal, but it's true, whether a person has attachment issues or, you know, their parents beat them or whatever their issues are, in the end, you're not responsible for their feelings. Now that doesn't give you a free pass to be a dick, but in the end, their feelings, what's going on inside of them is their responsibility, all right? And if you can be kind about it, yet still be firm and hold your ground, that's what you need to do. And unfortunately, sometimes we get into this, you know, mudslinging in, in breakups. The more we can avoid that, the better. Why? Why is it better? 
because they're going to sling mud too. At the very least, even if you don't feel a sense of altruism or not wanting to just have that kind of crap in your life where we're both hurting each other, then do it as a self-defense mechanism. Avoid the mud slinging as a self-defense mechanism because they're going to sling mud at you. And then you're going to obsess over it. Or you're going to get even angrier. And when we get, you know, pumped up and swollen with full of crappy emotions, we make stupid decisions. We make hurtful decisions. So whether you're breaking up with someone with attachment issues or whatever the reason may be, be kind, but be firm and keep it moving forward and be clear and just put your truth out there. Don't do the slow walk out of a relationship. Well, you know, I want to take a month off and then let's talk again. I see that a lot with young people and it's not new to this generation. We did it back in my generation. Well, you know, let's cool off for a little bit and then you break up later. When you already know now that you want to break up, just do it. Make the clean cut. Do the other person the courtesy of giving them the truth. All right, next question. Joanna over on Facebook asked the question, how do you teach a child how to recognize narcissistic behavior learned subconsciously from one of their parents? <laughs> now, Joanna, I'm going to assume you're talking about the other parent. Uh, so how do you teach your child? You're wanting to know how to teach your child how to recognize narcissistic behavior learned subconsciously. So that seems to imply the child is exhibiting narcissistic behavior and you believe that child learned it from the parent. Okay, I'm going to substitute out narcissistic and put in extreme taker because I prefer that term and I'm not a psychologist, so I don't get into all that. Um, how do you teach a child to recognize that their own behaviors are basically that you learned it from your parents and it's not a good behavior? You tell them. You tell them you're not a bad person, but you're doing a bad thing. Okay, this behavior or we this we don't do that in our home. Okay, this is not okay. And in a way, just like the breakup we were talking about just a minute ago, you have to be kind but firm. Kind but firm. And so many parents, and you know what? I'm going to do a very slight devolution here. So many parents are afraid to be firm. And I see it especially with single parents, but so many parents are afraid to be firm nowadays. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. I want you, if you're a parent, I want to ask you a question. And the question simply is this. And I am a parent, I have two adult kids, and, and so this is for all parents out there. What percent do you want to be liked by your child? The reason I'm asking this question is because back when I was an NCAA strength coach, I also did some counseling of uh, most of the coaches on the staff, not just the uh, strength coaches, but all of the sports. And in some of the private conversations we would have, I would ask them this question that I sort of thought up, and it was simply this. And I told him, I won't tell anyone until I have a show 20 years later and no one knows who the hell you are, right? Uh, so I'm, I'm, devol I'm <laughs> showing their secrets now. No, I'm teasing. I won't tell anyone or any of your fellow coaches, but I'm just curious, what percent do you want to be liked by your team and what percent do you want to be respected by your team? And you want to know what I discovered? Most fascinating thing, that the percent a coach wanted to be respected by their team by their athletes that they coached, the percent that they wanted to be respected was directly correlated like on like a one-to-one -one correlation to their winning percentage. No lie. That if they generally won 50% of their games, guess what percent they wanted to be respected by their athletes? 50%. I had one coach who had won like 12 national championships over 22 years or whatever. Do you want to know the percent that he wanted to be respected by his team? His answer was, well, about 5%, because, you know, when I go on these recruiting visits, I actually I can't piss off the parents too much, so I got to be somewhat likable. 
And I had another coach who, when I asked him that, he said about 60% I wanna be like, but 40% he uh, coached a, a women's sport. And after we had that conversation, subsequent com conversations, he began to realize, oh man, that's a problem. I said, that it is a problem because you're fundamentally using your athletes to get your own needs met. If you wanna be liked by your team, 40%, you're using those athletes, in his case, his female athletes, to get your own needs met to be liked. Well, that's what your wife is for. That's what your buddies are for. That's what your fellow coaches are for. That's not what those athletes are for. You're there to extract their greatness. That's your job to build winning teams, to bond them together as you know, as this cohesive unit and to learn all that comes from doing that, not to get your own needs met. And he's like, holy shit, that's true. And so he was pulling back from hard decisions because he wanted to be liked. So back to you as a parent, what percent do you wanna be liked? The higher that percentage is, the more you're gonna back off of the hard decisions, the more you're gonna give in when the child needs you to be firm. Do you know what children need? Children need firm boundaries. And that doesn't mean go and be a dick all day, but it's like it's like training a puppy to not urinate in the house. When the puppy is going pee pee in the house house, you pick them up and you carry them outside. You pick them up and you carry them outside every single time. But if you're only doing it a few of the times, guess what? Puppy gets mixed message. Puppy starts going in the house sometimes, out of the house sometimes. Puppy doesn't care because puppy doesn't know what the hell you want because you don't know what the hell you want because you just want to be nice, nice with puppy, puppy, right? Same way with kids except 10 times more so because it's hard when they whine or they complain or they're sad or you hurt their feelings. Yeah, sometimes you're going to hurt your kid's feelings, but it's the willingness to not be like. I heard a great quote recently from Ben Affleck the actor, he was talking about, I believe his daughter was raging on him, you know, teenage girl, I guess. And she was saying, I hate you, I hate you. And he says, I love it when my daughter says that. And, he, and I'm sure I'm butchering the quote, but he basically said, because that says that she feels comfortable letting it out of her system, that she feels safe expressing her feelings, but she also knows I can handle it. I can handle it. And then she'll come back and you know she'll apologize and we'll talk about it and so on and so forth. But she knows that it's okay. Now, she can't act on that or be mean or whatever, but she knows it is okay. And she does feel remorse for it later and so on and so forth. So this notion of um, how much do I need to be like? Well, it's the same way uh, with, with breakups or anything else that sometimes we have to do the hard thing. And sometimes back to the question of breaking up, sometimes we have to do the mercy kill. Now, I wanna introduce to our audience, uh, everyone, I've got TikTok here, I've got Facebook, I've got YouTube going, the single most beautiful person to ever enter this studio and, and of course, this person's brand new son, Ellis. This is Ellis. Uh, let's see if, if everyone can uh, see this beautiful little baby that is now, how many, you know, look at all his cheeks. I want to gobble those cheeks up. How old is Ellis, Sarah? Nine weeks. Nine weeks. Wow. And what's been the biggest challenge so far? Has there been one? Um, not being able to eat with two hands. <laughs> She, you're mastering a new talent you didn't know you had. Right, I'm getting really good at doing things with my non-dominant hand. That's good, that's a good thing to have. And just for those uh, who are wondering who this beautiful little boy is, this is Rob the Rocket's first grandchild. And he is so beautiful, he has beautiful blue eyes. And thank God he gets his good looks from his mother and not his grandfather. You're right. Uh, no argument. And just watch watch your hands because they got the wet cement of his soul there. All right? Yeah, so that's right. Be, be careful. That's right. Oh, it's so good to have you in. Do you want to answer one of the questions, Ellis? Do you want to answer a question? Do you have something to say? Yes, that's it. He says, "Get flush it out. Flush it out, he says. 
That's like an amen in the church of badass counseling. Uh, he carries the flush equipment right there in his pants, so it's okay. <laughs> Quite naturally. Well, you're welcome back anytime you want to come. Oh, yes. You're very cute. All right. Rob has a question. Nothing to do with babies, but uh, how can you tell the difference between love bombing manipulation from genuine interest? I have some past trauma and my discernment isn't always spot on. Oh, that's a great question. And I look at uh, love bombing this way. It's only identified as love bombing after the fact, right? That's fundamentally what you're wrestling with. How do I know if it's love bombing or if it's, um, or if it's genuine love? And the way I look at it is, uh, for those of us who have been in a relationship, we're just, just sort of loving for the duration of the relationship. doesn't mean there aren't hard times. I'm in one now. It's been 10 years and we've been in the relationship and there's lots of love and so on and so forth. And it only becomes love bombing after it stops. Then we characterize it as, oh, it was a phase. It was the first three weeks or it was the first three months or the first three years. And then it stopped. When it starts to stop, you don't let it stop. That is, or that is to say, when someone starts hurting you, you don't allow it, especially when it's small, because it always, no, 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 we got him. Because it always starts small. No, he's not going anywhere. Um, and if he disapproves, he'll say, if I've got it wrong, he'll tell me, I have no doubt, okay? I like babies, they're very cute monsters, I wanna gobble them up. I have big, cute aggression, I wanna gobble his cheeks. No, so it's only love bombing when it stops, and so don't let it stop. Now, of course, there are gonna be fights, there are gonna be arguments, and we need to work those out, and so on and so forth, but the bottom line is this, if someone is hurting you, you have a responsibility to stand up, to shut it down, to not allow it. You have that responsibility so that there's never sort of the crash after love bombing. Yeah, of course, there's going to be the honeymoon phase and things won't be quite as you know glowing as they are in the first six months or year or whatever. But the bottom line is, is that hurt is never allowed. And so it's not about whether or not they change or how do I know which it is. It's Am I allowing it to change? And don't allow it. You have to be willing to stand up to yourself, which is why awareness of what's going on inside itself is infinitely more important than awareness of what's going on outside of you. Which question should we do next? Which question should we do next? It's kind of funny. When my children were very young, I was a pastor, and uh, you know they'd come to church and sit in the front pew or whatever with their mother, and occasionally one of my kids would come up and run up into the pulpit. And so I'd be preaching with one of my kids in my arms. Um, so this is not the first time I've done this, but it's been a while. And uh, I, don't, I don't know if I, my kids are pretty cute, but this one, boy, he's really, really cute. I like him so much. Here's a good one. Amy asks, how do you support an adult child who's in a manipul manipulative relationship? Well, my first question would be, how do you want to support them? What do you want to do? What do you not want to do? What do you want to say? What are you afraid of saying? The first question you got to be asking yourself is what are the stakes? Because if the stakes of saying something to your adult child, if the stakes of saying something are high, that you might lose that relationship, then of course that becomes a bigger question. Do I really want to say something or do I not want to say something? And how bad is the manipulative relationship? Who's getting hurt? Are little ones like this getting hurt? And if so, well, then the stakes are higher. And yeah, you do have an obligation to that little child to do something about it, to speak up. But to support an adult child means to deliver the love. But if you feel inclined to stand up and speak the truth as well, but you always have to understand what the potential stakes are. 
that your child may choose to be more loyal to their spouse than they are to you. So if you're not willing to lose your child, then yeah, zip your lip, all right? But they may walk away from you and you could lose your adult child for a long time. But if you feel the need to say something, then say something, all right? But then you here's the thing, when it comes to the, especially mother-in-law, daughter-in-law type stuff, you've always got to ask yourself, am I manipulating something here whether I'm the mother-in-law or whether I'm the daughter-in-law, am I manipulating something here because I've lost my son or I've lost my daughter or they're not treating my son or my daughter the way I want them to or what have you? How much of you is playing into this and how much is it really what's going on in the relationship? But you've always, if you're gonna speak up, you gotta be willing to lose the person. But I'm not gonna lose you, you're mine now. You're not going back to mommy, I get you the whole time. So cute. You wanna go back to mom? You wanna go back to mom? Oh, yes. Was that the best thing to ever happen on this show? I'm sorry, it just was. That was awesome. It was for me personally, yes. Yeah? It was so great. I love that. I love babies. I love little children. Gobble, gobble. And slurb at their bellies. On their bellies. I love that. Baby time is the best. Best, best. Oh, wow. All right. Let's get back into it, Rob. All right. Kay and is talking about narcissists, but I'm going to substitute for uh, extreme taker. Can an extreme taker acknowledge they do something wrong, but not change? It just keeps to just keep someone hopeful. Okay, I'm going to read it again. Can an extreme taker acknowledge they do something wrong, but not change it just to keep someone hopeful? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. If someone's an extreme taker, they'll say anything, they'll do anything. Why? Because they want to keep you there and they want to keep you pouring love into their love cup. They want to keep you servicing them. And if you ever get up the gumption and the strength or just you're sick of the pain, sick of the crap, and you decide to walk away from the extreme taker, then all of a sudden they'll start giving you everything you ever wanted so that why? They can get you back. And why? Because they want you so much? No. They want you to come back and pour love into their love cup. They don't want you back so they can love on you. They want you back so that you'll go back to loving on them. So yeah. You ask, can I, will they acknowledge they did something wrong? Oh, yeah, I did it wrong. And they'll keep doing it wrong. I mean, that's the cycle of abuse, right? Somebody abused you, whether with words or acts or, or deeds. Uh, and, uh, and then they feel bad because you're hurt. And then they apologize, apologize, apologize. And then it happens again. So apologizing and keeping the behavior. I mean, that's as old as the hills. All right, next question. Can an extreme taker ever truly fall in love with one person? Yeah. Their whole life, they're in love with one person themselves. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, but that's not what you meant, so I'll quit kidding around. Can they ever fall in? Yeah, I think an extreme taker will fall in love with whoever is next. And they will, they'll fall in love with you for as long as you are meeting their needs, for as long as you are filling their love cup. And then when they want more, because their love cup has a hole in the bottom. So it's never enough, no matter what you give them, which is why extreme takers always find what? Extreme givers. Because they're just constantly pouring love, pouring love. Oh, I finally got found someone, if you're the extreme giver, I finally found someone who will let me love them and they want all the love I have to give. And then they just bleed you. They suck you dry. Um, but can, it's not that they don't love one person per se. I mean, yes, that's the way it sort of manifests itself. But the real problem is, is they have an insatiable need for love, for attention, for uh, thinking they're being told they're the king of the world or queen of the world. And so, and what eventually breaks if an extreme taker, if a narcissist ever is going to be broken, it's always pain, and it's almost always pain from loss. And it may not be from the loss of you, but it'll be the loss of someone, maybe a lover, or very often, it's a child. 
when their own children, now 25 or 38 or whatever, just don't want them anymore. Now, not every extreme taker, not every narcissist gets broken through to, but it's always loss or repeated loss after loss after loss. If anything's gonna break them, it's always loss and the pain that goes with it. Much more to come right after this short break. I've been doing some real healing work in my life, and I mean hardcore, but I've been craving something new to level up. A friend of mine told me about this badass counselor. I gotta admit, I rolled my eyes. Then I watched a few of his videos, and yes, this is the guy. I went and got his audiobook, Badass Wisdom. Holy shit. Absolute ass-kicking, inspiring, deep, powerful shit, period. If you don't get this book, you're making a huge mistake. So do you got the guts to go big with your self-care? Go to badasscounseling.com, get the book Badass Wisdom now. This show provides soul counseling intended to entertain and inform and is not medical advice. Now, back to the badass. Yes, we have the studio babe in the house today, little Ellis. Uh, had him on the show. We love it. He's still in theater with us, uh, and it's great. So now we've got a studio cat. We've got Rob the Rocket. We've got KC in the booth, and we've got studio babe Ellis and Ellis's lovely mother. All right, here we go. Is me standing behind him, presumably your husband, uh, helping him through his trauma from the past the right way? He said no one's helped him through healing like me, that he found faith in God, but I feel emptied. I feel selfish to want my voice heard. My feelings to matter when to express them only makes him relate them to how my feelings make him feel. I try and he discards. He is in therapy, but she isn't skilled in uh, BPD. Am I wrong by standing by my man through all his past trauma? No one's helped him like me, which I'm sure feels good when he says that. But then you say uh, he found faith in God. I feel emptied. I feel selfish to want my voice heard. Okay, so now you, we're seeing a problem. If you feel selfish wanting your voice heard and when you express your feelings, he only makes about him and his feelings. Yeah, he's, he's just fucked. I try to and he discards my feelings. He's in therapy, but that person's not skilled in what he has. Am I doing the wrong thing? You, you're only doing the wrong thing and standing by someone if it's sucking the life out of you and it doesn't feel good anymore. When we're really giving from a place of authenticity, that place of giving gives to us too. So when I'm working with the homeless or when I'm doing something, I do it to the degree that it's still fill, filling my cup to do this giving. At the point, whether it's, whether it's doing volunteer work or in a relationship with a friend or whatever, my giving, I give more when I'm giving from a full cup. But he's minimizing your feelings. He's not listening to your wants. So he's taking and he's taking and he's taking and he's taking. And the question becomes, at what point do you get tired of that? At what point do you no longer allow him to make it about his feelings? At what point do you say, I need you to stop. This isn't about you. And the truth is, in this case, and this is uh, Brandy asking this question, you are conditioned, you are conditioned long before this relationship ever came around, to minimize your feelings and make it about the other person. To give and give and give and give as a way to get your own sense of worth. And so the real answer to your problem is back there, looking into where these messages came from, the origin sources, and how it was delivered, and then what that has caused you to believe about yourself. Because it, you're fundamentally conveying the message, I don't matter. If your feelings don't matter, even in your marriage, that's not a good sign. And that says there are deeper beliefs down there that are working against you from inside. So it's not a matter of just changing your actions. You have to go down and identify the core beliefs. All right. 
Callista asked the question here on TikTok. How can I stop enabling my adult parents with substance issues but still be supportive? Uh, I, I don't want to be enabling. I want to be supportive. My question would be, why do you want to be supportive? And furthermore, why is your enabling, why are you doing the enabling? And why do you want to stop enabling? Now, the mere fact that you ena- use the term enabling, enabling somewhat of, pe- of a pejorative, that means it's somewhat of a negative term. So you see what you're doing is sort of perpetuating their behavior and it's not a good thing, right? My question would be, why are you doing it? So you're doing it in all likelihood because you don't like to say no to them or because you're still wanting something from them. If you're afraid to say no to someone, it's because I still want something from them or I fear getting something. Maybe you fear their wrath or you're still wanting their approval. And maybe even you you say, I still want to be supportive. Why do you want to be supportive? If you're if by chance you're fully drained and sick of them, but still want to be supportive. Now, you didn't say that, but I'm just saying, if that's the case, that says you're wanting something from them or you're afraid of cutting them off entirely. So if I were to ask you a question, Callista, do you want to cut them off entirely? Or what would be the cost? Even if you don't want to, just out of curiosity, what would be the cost if you did cut them out entirely? What would they do? Because I'm willing to bet there is fear inside of you of even no longer enabling. I'm willing to bet that there's an expectation in them that you should, that you're required to, to look after them, to give them what they want. Because the mere fact that it's, it's still at the point of enabling says that you have a hard time saying no. There is some fear inside of you operating that if you really do stand up and say no to the enabling and potentially the no to the supporting them, if that's what you want, and there's a possibility that that is actually what you want, you're afraid of something happening, either losing something that you're still wanting, possibly their acceptance, their approval, their acknowledgement, their affection, uh, their apology, or uh, you're afraid of incurring something such as their wrath or their anger, which means there's deeper stuff going on inside of you that you've got to identify what the fear is before you can actually solve this particular question. Next question. Rob, you got one? I do. I find this uh, somewhat interesting, in fact. Uh, what do you do when trauma from your parents raising you is what made you proud and motivates you throughout life? Proud you overcame it, grateful that they taught you pain so you can handle the world, but then there's another part of you that feels wronged. Yeah, oh, for sure. No, that's, and that's, uh, I, <laughs> that's 90% of my clientele, people who, of my clientele, that may be a bit high, 75% of my clientele are extraordinarily high achievers, like top of the line in their professions, academia, entertainment, uh, business, money, finance, uh, you name it, uh, education, politics. And where, but every single one of them has a hole in their love cup, has a hole inside and they get, whether it's in their thirties or more often forties, fifties or later. And they realize that I have all of this success. I have all the accoutrements of success and money and fame and title and all this. And I'm fucking miserable inside or my kids hate me or I've now just gone through my fourth divorce or whatever it is. And, and they're wondering what's going on. Well, that's somebody who had so much crap, pain, fears, and BS beliefs that they were taught about themselves way back in childhood. And the child adapts to those things. And they adapt, very often, what are they trying to do? They're, the child is trying to get those things that they didn't get. They're either trying to cut off all the criticism so they become perfect so that no one can criticize them or put them down. Well, imagine a child becoming perfect. They're gonna have perfect grades, perfect dress, date the perfect people, look perfectly. What do perfect people often do? Hey, they succeed. 
right? So they're either trying to avoid the criticism or they're trying to gain approval. We just taped a show right before we got on. We were talking to a guy named Mac who uh, had an older brother who was the golden child and he was second in line of four brothers. And he said, I, my whole life, I'm 60 years old now and I'm still trying to get my father's approval. His father's been dead for a year. Still, even at 60, 85% of his life has been spent trying to get his father's approval. So never doubt the imprint of, of a child getting the message that I am what I do. So maybe you're trying to get that accepted and, and Max is still trying to be accepted, be approved of. So whether you're trying to get acceptance, approval, acknowledgement of the pain that was caused you or apology or affection, um, it's a highly motivating thing to want uh, to want that. So how did they state the question exactly, Rob? Can you give it to me one more time? Yes, indeed. Uh, what do you do when the trauma from your parents raising you got is it. what made no, you proud it. and motivates you? Right. And so you turn it in. It all. It very often gets turned one of two ways. Either you turn it into your uh, sort of success machine. You redeem it. You turn something bad into good. You turn you know shit into beautiful plants, manure into uh, daisies, right? Um, or it sucks you down and you quit trying, right? And so what you do is you realize that you, you redeemed the pain that was inflicted on you. You took those crappy messages they taught you and you did something with it. You did that. They didn't do that. You think that was their intent? I'm going to beat this child silly. And that's, and it's going to make them better. No. No, they were irresponsible, potentially horrible parents, and that child made something out of it, but it doesn't change the fact that there's extraordinary pain inside of you, that there are incredible beliefs that are destroying you because you know what you did? Sure, you may have created success, but that doesn't mean you've been living your authentic self. In fact, more often than not, you aren't. In fact, almost every single time, anybody who is adapting to those external voices is adapting. Not, it's not your authentic self. You're just being whoever you got to be to get attention, approval, acceptance, acknowledgement, apology, or to avoid all the criticisms. That's not your authentic self. And where that really becomes problematic is in parenting. And when some people say, well, I'm just being the opposite of what my parents are. Yeah, the opposite of bad is sometimes even worse. Okay. And so what do you do with it? You have to begin to the fellow that asked this question or the woman that asked this question or the non-binary that asked this question. My answer is you have to be willing to go back into those feelings and allow them. Because two things can be true simultaneously. Yes, you did redeem all the bad that was done to you and you did make a lot of good out of it, but it also cost you an immense amount of your life. And you've got to welcome all the hatred, all the sadness, all the disappointment, all the betrayal, all the everything um, because only then is all the crud out and you can finally begin to live authentically because you may not even know who you authentically are. In fact, I'm willing to bet you don't. All right, next question. Do extreme takers care that they hurt their children? You know, that's an interesting little one right there. Um, very often they don't see it or don't care and they're tuned into their own selves, uh, but get them drunk and sometimes they feel it. Have them talking to somebody else who can draw them out and sometimes they know it. Or have their uh, young son, whom you know they've been harsh on and so on and so forth, become 25 or 35 and find his strength. Or their daughter say, screw you and walk away. Their daughter that they thought was going to adore them and pour love into their love cup all along. And they thought they had a special relationship with, even though they've been harsh or brutal with or whatever their entire life, have their daughter or have their child walk away from them or want nothing to do with them or their adult child walk away from the family business or whatever was expected. And they get a oftentimes a slap in the face and they realize, holy shit, 
But when you ask, do extreme takers um, care that they're hurting their children? A lot of times they've cut themselves off to even recognizing that they're hurting their children or their own needs are so great that it overrides. There's sort of a, a override switch that doesn't even allow them to recognize that they're hurting their own children. So it, it's not a case of uh, awareness always. It, it's, it's just shut down. They don't even care. It's about themselves. And more often than not, just so we're aware, extreme takers have had their own pain that at some point they realize their own needs weren't being met. We had someone on, on the show once, Rob, I don't know if you remember, that at eight years old, he realized that his needs weren't getting met. By eight years old, he knew that he was not loved no one cared and he was not getting the love and want. And he said, Sven, and that was the show from March 23rd of last year where we had an admitted narcissist and uh, someone recovering from a narcissist, a totally right. different person. And he said, at age eight, I began to manipulate people and control and tantrums and do whatever I had to do to get my own needs met. And it was only, he only began to admit it and want to change from it when he realized he was gonna lose his wife and he really did love and care for his wife. And when that slapped him in the face, he also, all the feelings, he was aware of how he was treating his children. He felt horrible remorse over it and so on and so forth. So uh, are they aware of it in the moment? Very often, if they are, it's stuffed down so deeply because they're just pleasuring themselves. They're getting their own wants met. All right, next question. Can I just accept my parent power over me and work on other stuff? Of course you can. You can do whatever the hell you want. It's your life. It's your life. If you want your parents to have power over you, okay. Now, I'm willing to bet you're not a minor because you probably wouldn't be on my silly show if you were under 18, right? And so you're likely an adult and you're saying, can I just accept my parental power over me and work on other stuff? Yeah, you can. But <laughs> you don't come to me and ask that question. I mean, because you know, I mean, you're not, a, you're not listening to my show unless you know somewhat about how I operate. And I'm going to ask you, the first question I'm going to ask, ask you is why do you want to what do you fear happening that is causing you to accept someone to have power over you have now in some cases you know i give certain people certain amounts of power over me or uh, decision trust in my life but they've earned it now you say well my parents have earned it sure but let me ask why are you even asking that question accepting my parents' power over me. It's like almost a part of you chafes at the idea and doesn't want it, but I almost hear you saying, I'm gonna accept it because I'm afraid of standing up to them. Is it possible, Hamza, this is your question, can I just accept my parent power over me and work on other stuff? Is it possible that you really don't like it and you wanna live your own life, but you're terrified of standing up to your parents? Maybe because of, you know, uh, you know, they're very controlling, they get angry, or maybe because it's your extended family would look down on you. Maybe, and we do this for any number of reasons, we give people power over us. Maybe it's our culture, maybe it's my religion, maybe it's my whatever, but if you, the real question is, do you want to accept their power over you? Or do you want to be living a different life that is different from what they want for you? And if you do, then why are you allowing this? And in all cases, it's fear. You're terrified of something if you were to actually stand up and reclaim your power. Identify what that is, what you're really afraid of. And now you're beginning to actually know your authentic self. And you got to ask the question, am I willing to sacrifice my authentic self so as to keep my to placate my parents, keep them happy, keep them liking me or keep them from getting angry at me or what have you. 
Uh, next question. And if you have one, Rob, go ahead and chime in. Otherwise, I, I've got some here. I have a very simple one if you'd like to entertain it. Go for it. How do you know you're properly healing? Oh, simple. If there are not signs, and that's really what you're asking, if there are not indicators, then, uh, and it's not necessarily that you're not properly healing, you're just not healing. Um, what does healing uh, feel like? Healing feels lighter. Healing brings lightness. Healing brings clarity. And it may come in small doses in the beginning. Now, with my clients, because our opening sessions are usually six hours long, it comes in some pretty big chunks. But healing can also come with feeling massively overwhelmed. One of the things with some clients, they say, yeah, what we went over in session today, Sven, I, you know, I do feel a little lighter. No, not really, Sven. What I feel is just like this massive, like, holy shit. All right. That feels like that's healing. Well, how is that healing? Isn't healing supposed to feel good? Why is feeling overwhelmed good? Because it's a finally a sign that you actually went down to it, that you've actually identified what the real issues are. And it's like the holy shit. You know, there's a, there's a, sometimes when I've done, I don't know if you've seen them, when I've done live uh, events, not for the podcast, but just in my office, I have a thing my daughter gave me once, one of my sayings, and she I had it carved into steel. And it says, creation is invariably preceded by destruction. So, uh, the nice feelings of healing are invariably preceded by the yucky feelings of healing. And the yucky feelings are, are, can come in the form of overwhelmed, can come in the form of tired, can come in the form of the heaviness of seeing it and feeling it for the first time. Those are steps in the healing process because you can't heal something until you can see what the wound is, until you can see what the disease is, until you can see what you've been taught about yourself, until you can see, holy shit, I really do feel betrayed by my father for always running out of the house or always being at the bar or always being at work, never wanting to be around mom because he couldn't stand her, but he let us eat her wrath, whatever it might be. So feeling overwhelmed, seeing things, seeing the big nature of them, or the opposite of that, the more you begin to then clear out that stuff that you've unearthed, you begin to have clarity. Clarity is like the the, the silent stalker sort of thing, sort of thing uh, as we, I think they talk about in horse racing, the dark horse. Clarity is, you know, we know about peace. You begin to have more calm, but clarity is this beautiful thing. You begin to see more clearly, not just your life and understand it more clearly, but see forward, see yourself more clear. Um, lightness. You're doing healing if you're getting, actually flushing out the deepest stuff, the deepest pain, fears, and BS beliefs you've been taught about yourself, you're going to begin to feel lighter. Uh, hope. Hope is another indicator that you're on the healing path. But lightness, calm, clarity, inner peace, the motor isn't constantly running inside. Your overthinking is calming down. Your mind is calming down. You have less anxiety. Um, and the more you do of it, what you'll notice is that your normal energy level increases. You literally have more spontaneous energy. The more you do it, it just increases. And if you're not having these markers, then you're not going deep enough in your healing work. You, if you go deep enough, change, uh, transformation can be immediate if you go deep enough. And by immediate, I mean weeks, months. My average client is with me from three to six months. And it's massive life transformation. Why? Because I go very, very deep, very, very quickly. And I have extended sessions that enable me to do that. But those are some of the indicators that you're doing the work. But never underestimate the power of feeling overwhelmed. That's when you're in it. Now you're in the muck. And this muck is what now needs to be shoveled out. Uh, right. Next question. 
Um, and the question is simply this, what makes you qualified to be a counselor? Well, the short answer is this, the same thing that makes your favorite aunt qualified to counsel you when you're going through a hard time with your boyfriend. She loves you, she cares. She's been you know, around the block a few times and she may have some insights and some wisdom. So on just a real interpersonal level of humanity, I've been around the block. I've eaten a lot of shit. I've been through a couple of divorces, lost my kids for many years. Uh, I was suicidally depressed for 12 years and got myself out of it. But also, um, I'm a former clergyman. I'm a former emergency room cha chaplain at a level one trauma center. I've done a small amount of prison ministry as well. Uh, I've done ministry to the homeless for two and a half years of uh, Oakland, California, sleeping on the street on concrete every night for two and a half years. I've had a counseling practice for 30 years, last 10 of which have been in Manhattan and the New York City area, a soul counseling practice. Um, if you want my bio, just go to badasscounseling.com and click on the bio page. There's more there. But as I, as it says abundantly clearly on the website, and we state it um, in the intro to the show and throughout the show, I'm constantly saying I'm not a psychologist. I am not a medical professional. If you want a psychologist or a doctor or a medical professional go in their direction, I just stay in my lane. I do soul counseling, which as I see it is much deeper work. Um, so I hope that answers the question. All right, next question. I, I like getting asked that now and then, Rob. Just so everyone's clear, uh, I'm not a psychologist and I quite frankly don't care about psychology. I have mad respect for psychology and the people who do that work, but that's not my lane. Always oh, a good answer and very clear. All right, appreciate that. Oh, this is a good one. This is a juicy one. And I get this one. I get it. I just had a client uh, last week, same thing. Why doesn't my mom love me? Ooh, we... The person we just counseled, Mac, in the show, prior to doing this lightning round, we counseled a fellow named Mac. Uh, I had a client last week, um, basically realized, a home of extreme abuse, and realized that her, you know, at a young age, she realized my mom is, hates me. And she's realized my mom has hated me in her entire life. And I said, what's the earliest memory you have of your mom? And she said, well, it's blah, blah, blah from when I was three and she, you know, did whatever. And it, it can be a dad, it can be a mom, whatever. Uh, but in this case, it was a mom. And I said, what were the circumstances of your birth? And she says, oh, my mom always told me she didn't want me. I was the oldest child and she didn't want me. And that she had a career and uh, she felt like she had to give up her career. And, you know, and then it sort of threw a huge dent in the relationship. Or no, no, no. In this case, it was, you know, I had to marry a guy that I didn't want to marry and so on and so forth. And I said, so potentially she's hated you from the moment she learned of your conception. And she said, whoa, whoa, yeah. So it's, the thing is, is that what does the child then interpret it as? Well, however that treatment comes out, the child then interprets as this parent hates me. And the child then converts it as it almost logical, it's almost logical that a child would converts it to I'm unlovable. Something's wrong with me that my mother doesn't love me or it could be the father, my father doesn't. There must be something wrong with me. I suck, I'm unlovable, I'm unwantable. When in fact, that was never the case. The case is your mom was an asshole. You ask the question, why doesn't my mom love me? Uh, I'm gonna assume this goes back to childhood. If it doesn't, then that's a separate question. But if this goes back to childhood, it's because your mom's a fucking irresponsible parent. Yeah, maybe your mom had her own shit going on, but fix your shit. This is a child. A1 priority, love the child, bring love, serve, protect, provide emotionally, not just physically and food and, and shelter. Provide, protect the child's emotions. But no, she conveyed it to you. If she conveyed it even back in childhood, you've got a mom who didn't do her fucking job. 
Why? Because she had her own shit going on and she felt that her shit was more important than your shit. Now, I don't know how you defend parenthood, but that to me ain't no definition of parenthood except bad parenting. Really fucking bad parenting. Forgive me, but fuck her. You don't love your child? Now, if if this happened in, in adulthood because, you know, you, I don't know what, you stole all her money or something, well, you know, that might be a pretty good fucking reason. But even a one-off like that doesn't mean the love goes away. It means she just may hate you as well. Love and hate can coexist. But I'm willing you're talking about something that goes back to childhood, in which case that it had nothing to do with you. And the problem is you've probably thought, and I say this only because I've seen this about 2,568,100 million times. Um, you've probably thought your entire life that you're unlovable. The, the, the child will convert it in, uh, if they don't get the love from the parent, the child's brain will convert it into there's something wrong with me. I'm unlovable. I'm not good enough. And that's the problem. That's why we get people in adulthood who feel unlovable or unwantable or whatever, and they'll blame it on their marriage that went bad. But shit, that existed long before that marriage went bad. All right. Uh, Rob, we're going to take two more questions. Have you got one? Oh, I got a good one. And remember, it's business. Don't take it personal. Ready? Okay. The extreme taker in my life is my husband, who is also a pastor. He always blames me for his behavior when he rages. He says if I would just not argue, everything would be fine, and he wouldn't rage. (laughs) Why would I take that personally? No reason at all. (laughs) So just so I've got it clear, husband rages, and if you just shut the fuck up, be my fucking wife, be docile, and just eat shit, Hey, there wouldn't be a problem. If you just let me run the show, there wouldn't be a problem. Am I generally reading it right? Right? Yeah, he's a pastor, so I guess he has some sense of running things. And and clearly has a sense of right and wrong. Um, Gosh, uh, okay. So what is her question then? What fundamentally is her question? Um, Not a question. I guess she's wondering, well, how do I handle this situation? He says, uh, if I just wouldn't argue, everything would be okay. And he wouldn't rage and argue. Yeah. And unfortunately, one of the things that happens when we are being dominated in a relationship, and I was very much dominated in one of my very first relationships in adulthood, and is that you lose sort of your own sense of what's right and what's wrong, what's acceptable, what am I supposed to do? Um, You lose sort of your own compass on you know, uh, so forth. And you mix in religion. And I grew up in the church. You know, dad was a pastor. Four of my uncles were pastors. Mom worked in the church for many years, running education systems. And I was a pastor myself, though I came from a different sort of wing of Christianity and uh, so forth where uh, it was the good kind, where just humble, decent people. And, you know, mom was was definitely not subservient. My maternal grandmother uh, told her country pastor back in the 1930s or 40s to stick it. And she went and started her own church. <laughs> so no, I come from some pretty tough, tough women. Um, so what do you do in this case? Well, you have a few choices. One, just shut up. Just shut up. There won't be a problem if you shut up. He's making that abundantly clear. Just shut up. That's one option. Am I recommending it? No, absolutely not. But let's admit it is an option. Option two is you can stand up to him every single time and not back down. Every single time he hurts you, negates your feelings, tell you what you should do, tells you to shut the fuck up and be the quiet wife, or don't upset him, uh, or every time he says you're upsetting him, all these times you can stand up and not back down. You can do that. 
that will require, if you're already in a pattern of him treating you this way, then you changing his patterns is going to require you healing yourself first because it's going to require a massive amount of energy, a massive amount of energy to stand up every single time. That's how we change behaviors. That's how you change behaviors in a dog. That's how you change behaviors in a in a child. That's how you change uh, behaviors in employees is you have to nip shit in the butt every single time, right? Otherwise, it becomes sketchy. Um, but then the other thing is, quite honestly, is you walk away. Because clearly he has he clearly he has power over you that you're even considering the notion that he even feels comfortable saying if you wouldn't trigger me if you'd just be quiet we wouldn't have a problem that a, that a, a husband a quote unquote pastor is comfortable doing those things says that he clearly believes he has all the power which means you probably to a large degree acknowledge that too I'm not saying it's good he just probably does. And so the idea of uh, standing up to him every time is probably out the window. I'm betting that you wouldn't even be posing that question unless the idea of just being quiet all the time, you realize how fucking wrong that is. And him blaming you for him getting mad, it's just like, it's like, dude, shut. And I'm talking to him now, not you. Dude, shut the fuck up. You're going to blame your anger on someone else that if they'd just be quiet and agree and go along, then you wouldn't get mad? What kind of fucking out of control fuck that your feelings depend on someone else's actions, that someone raises their feelings or disagrees with you and that gives you a right? He's speaking like he has a right to do this. It's just bullshit. It's abusive bullshit. I I don't know of a solution here, a truly viable solution other than walking away from this shit because the amount of energy it's gonna take for you to retrain him I don't know if you have, if you're this far beaten down. If his if his dominance level is at this high a level, that means you're probably well beaten down and it's probably gonna be infinitely easier. Even though you don't like the idea of, of conjuring the energy to walk away, it's probably gonna be infinitely easier than to attempt to change his behaviors because just loving him and just being docile and quiet while you may be able to do that, it's gonna suck the fucking life out of you even more than it already has. So you've got a big decision on your hands. Do you have the courage to walk away or do you have the courage to stand up for yourself? Because you just going quiet is the death of you and I do not validate the decision to kill yourself so that someone else can be an asshole because that's what you're doing. Every time you sit quietly and and you're basically saying, I don't matter, I don't matter, I don't matter. And I don't, I don't, like that for you. You have every right to come alive and feel honored and feel like you matter. You want to weigh in with anything on that, Rob? You just uh, mean kill metaphorically, right? Metaphorically. Absolutely metaphorically. That it's killing you. It's killing your spirit, which is why you're even raising that question to begin with. All right. Oh, wait a minute. Oh. She says, I did move out, but I'm terrified of divorcing him. And then I would want to, I would ask the question, what's your biggest fear in divorcing him? Are you like physically afraid, like he might hurt you? Or is it, I'm afraid of what the church might think? I'm afraid of what my parents might think, or I'm afraid of being alone? Uh, that's the question you got to ask. What precisely above all else are you most afraid of? That's the question. All right. And, and guys, just so you know, I was having a conversation with a 20 five-year-old, 26-year-old young woman, and we were talking about some stuff going on in her life, money stuff, uh, man stuff, that sort of thing. And uh, we're talking about this and that, and she has some big career decisions coming up and so forth. And I asked her what she's most afraid of in this situation. And she thought about it, went silent for a couple minutes, thought about it. And she says, I don't really have any fears. And I said, then what's the struggle? 
well, I'm just not sure, da 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 da. And I said, listen, I, respectfully, you're lying to yourself. I guarantee you have fears. Every decision, especially a big decision, comes with fears. And the point I wanted to make to her is whether you tell me those fears or not, whether you're even able to identify your fears, I guarantee you have fears. And the answer to problems, most problems in life, goes through being able to name what your real fears, fears are. Because once we can name our fears, we begin to uncover what's really holding us back or what's really shooting us forward at a rocket speed or what's really operating inside of us. It's the solutions to so many of our problems get answered when we drill down to what's the real fear operating inside of me. If I do this, what's the real fear, fear operating if I don't do it? It looks like you have a follow-up, Rob. Yeah, you are perceptive as always, my friend. There is another follow-up. He will blame me if he loses the church. Yeah, and let him. He's just being a fucking baby. Dude, if you're not, if you're, okay. Now it could be a theological thing that the, the, your particular, his particular theology of his church is if you get a divorce, you're bad and you certainly can't be a spiritual leader of a church. Well, that's the fucking theology of your church and hey, whatever. Um, but uh, if that isn't your church's theology, that that a divorce is okay in your church's theology and that a, 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 you can be a spiritual leader and be divorced and there are plenty of them in the church and in synagogues and temples and so forth, um, then if, where I'm going with this is, if the theology of your church allows for a divorce with the spiritual leader and he loses his church, that just means he's a shitty leader because you can't blame it on the fucking theology. Jeez, if you can't keep your church just because of a fucking divorce, maybe you ought to improve your ability to fucking counsel people. And we already know he's a big enough dickhead to his own wife. It's not so unreasonable to think he may not be the best spiritual leader. Huh, go figure. But that's not really your thing. He'll blame me for him losing the church. Yeah, of course he is. He's a fucking baby. We already know he's trying to dominate you and he wants to make you the fault. So he's got you trapped. In the end, this is really it. And so, Rob, this is it. It's naming the fear that I'm most afraid of, afraid of being blamed by him, by my mom, by my dad, whatever it is. And until you reach the point of, fuck it, I don't even care if I'm blamed anymore. I don't even care. You want to blame me? Be a fucking baby. Blame me. I don't care anymore. I have to do this for me. Once you reach that fucking point, all of a sudden you have the courage to do what you didn't have the courage to do just yesterday. You have the clarity. I know what I got to do when just yesterday I wasn't sure. I was trying to figure out. I was hopeful, whatever. Go ahead, Rob. No, that's it. And by the way, don't hold back. Tell people how you really feel. <laughs> well, especially when we start bringing in theology, it's like, okay, really, really? All right. All right. Last question. Last one of the night from Elizabeth. How do you let down walls after an abusive relationship? Um, if you have to force yourself to let them down, don't let them down. What I mean by that is the walls naturally come down when we've done the work to heal the pain that drove those walls up in the first place. I got a fucking wall because I'm terrified of getting hurt again, right? That means terror is inside of me. There's nothing wrong. If you want to have terror, have terror. You want to be afraid, be afraid. It's your life. Spend it however you want. But that means, and that fear is because of pain. The higher your pain level, the higher your fear level inside of you, right? So if you haven't done the work of flushing out all the pain that happened in your last relationship, whether it was because they betrayed you or they left or they cheated or it was an abusive relationship, uh, that if you don't, once you get out that pain, the emotional pain that goes with it, Guess what reduces? Now I'm not so afraid of getting hurt. If for no other reason, then I know that if I get hurt again, and you will. I mean, there's the, the, I talk about in my book, the myth of the pain-free relationship. You're gonna get hurt in different ways. But once you've been through hell the first time, you know how to get out the second time. 
and you become less intimidated by it and you don't shy away from risk or trust in a new relationship. You don't shy away from it as much. Why? Because you realize if I get hurt again, is it the end of the world? No. Will I be okay? Yes. I will grieve. It will hurt. I'll flush out the pain. I'll do the healing work, but life will go on. And so how do you let down the walls after an abusive relationship? You do the work of healing the pain that drove the walls up and the fear up in the first place because walls are fear. All right, folks, this has been great. Wonderful uh, breadth of questions tonight. We had the visit from the most beautiful little creature, uh, Ellis. uh, uh, Rob, your grandson. My my grandbaby. Your grandbaby was in the studio. We got studio baby. That's that's a good sign. It's, it's a blessing. How did it, how does it feel, Rob? It's um it's different. It's very unusual, and it really does feel great. It's as warm as can be. Mm. And and I love Ellis's mother. She's a peach, just a wonderful, talented, professional, brilliant woman, and such a doting, loving mother. It's, uh, I love it. I love it. And those cheeks on that baby. I want to gobble those cheeks. They're so cute. So to everyone around the world, thank you so much for tuning in to yet another episode of the Badass Counseling Show. On behalf of Casey, Rob DeRocket, to all of our friends around the world, from Ireland to Australia, from Canada to South Africa, have a kick-ass day. The Badass Counseling Show is strictly copyrighted. No copies may be made without the express written consent of the Badass Counseling Show, LLC. The Badass Counseling Show is produced by Karen Camparelli and Robert H. Friedman. Executive producer, Sven Erlinson. Original music by two-time Emmy Award-winning composer Trevor Morris. Have a kick-ass day.